Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you'll help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. And thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing oil in the Bay Area. California is the country's biggest gasoline market and home to two-thirds of the oil refining capacity in the western United States. With hydraulic fracturing or fracking causing an oil and gas boom in North Dakota and other states, the supply of domestic oil is surging. A small and growing percentage of that oil is coming into California on rail cars, raising concerns about public safety. Here in the Bay Area, five oil refineries in the East Bay supply the fuel that gets us around and powers our regional economy. Without gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel, our lives would grind to a halt. Yet burning oil and other fossil fuels is driving climate disruption that's increasingly linked to megafires, and searing drought, and other extreme events with high economic costs. Over the next hour, we'll discuss moving and using oil and the prospects for a clean energy future. This program is underwritten by the San Francisco Foundation. We'd like to thank them for their support. Joining our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us four guests. John Avalos is a member of the Bay Area Air Quality Management District and a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Jess Durbin Ackerman is with the Sierra Club San Francisco Bay Chapter. Molly Samuel, a reporter with KQED Science, and Tupper Hull, Vice President of Strategic Communications with the Western States Petroleum Association. Please welcome them to Climate One. Before we begin, I should mention that we invited BNSF, the railway bringing crude oil into the Bay Area, and they declined to participate today. We hope that they will do so another time. Uh, Just Durbin Ackerman, uh, the Bay Area economy relies on fossil fuels. It will for a long time into the future. Isn't it better to get this from domestic American supply rather than from petro dictators overseas? I can see why you would say that, but actually what we're seeing right now is this transition to extreme fuels, and we're seeing oil companies try to invest billions of dollars in new infrastructure to be bringing those new extreme fuels to the Bay Area refineries, and what we don't want is to lock ourselves into 35 or 50 years of new infrastructure that needs to be used in order to pay those bills. We should be spending that billions of dollars on clean energy um, locally in the Bay Area to transition. Tupper Hall, extreme fuels. Well, this is a term that you, you see a lot, and there are a number of initiatives around the state. There's nothing extreme about the oil and natural gas that's being produced in tremendous abundance in the United States. There's a reality that we face in California as we confront this climate change challenge that we're all involved in addressing, and that is we are the third largest gasoline and diesel consuming entity on the face of the earth behind the United States as a whole and China. China has actually surpassed the United States. Our members have an obligation to supply that market as efficiently, as safely, and at the lowest possible cost they can. So you have an abundance of energy production. We are in the unheard of posture today of being close to energy independent. Energy independence means a number of things. 
We've seen the lowest greenhouse gas emissions since the 1990s because of the conversion from um, coal electricity generation to, to natural gas. We've seen a tremendous reduction in, in energy prices in the Midwest that has resulted in a huge resurgence of manufacturing. But perhaps most importantly, and we have a beautiful example of this today, consumers in the United States and in California are directly benefiting from the energy renaissance that's taking place in this country. If you see the, the events that are occurring in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe today, I can assure you a couple of years ago, two things would have happened. Energy markets would have spiked and gasoline prices would have followed. And what are we seeing today? We are seeing crude prices coming down and consequently gas prices coming down. And that's because the United States is now in a much different position, is producing record amounts of its own domestic energy. And the only way that we consumers in California could benefit from that is to bring this product in on rail. So there are serious and legitimate questions about the safety. We've all seen these, these, the accidents and the horrific pictures of accidents. And there's tremendous effort underway, both in Washington, Sacramento, and elsewhere, to look at the existing infrastructure, to look at regulations and practices, and make sure that that transport's occurring safely. Molly Samuel, tell us, set a baseline here. What kind of oil is coming into the barrier? Where is it coming from? Where is it going? Well, it's a, it's, we don't have exact numbers. The, you know, the refineries themselves know what they're bringing in, but the, they, you know, it's proprietary information. It's competitive. They don't want to tell us exactly. Um, the, the one thing we are able to find out, and this is because of a federal order from, from the DOT, an emergency order that said uh, because of safety concerns, Bakken crude, the crude from North Dakota, which is more volatile, when, when these trains derail, they explode. Um, if you've got a train carrying a million barrels or more, or no, a million gallons or more, sorry, um, coming you know, traveling through a state, railroads, you've got to tell states when this is happening. And so, so now we know that uh, about one train a week carrying that amount of Bakken crude is coming into Richmond. Um, and this is information from, from BNSF, and it's coming into the Kinder Morgan, into a rail yard in, in Richmond. Um, so that's what we know about the Bakken crude. There's, there's also crude coming from, from Alberta, from Utah, from New Mexico. There's all kinds of crude coming in by rail, but, but where exactly it's going, we, we don't know. But that's happened for a long time. What is it about the Bakken crude that's new or different? I mean, well, rail cars have been coming in for decades, and no one really heard of, you know, there's not much fuss. That's, at, at, rail is actually pretty new here. Um, I was looking at CEC numbers, California Energy Commission numbers. In 2008, no, no crude came in by rail. Um, and, and I think in 2013, it was more than 6 million barrels. Is that, I think, I think I've got that number right. Um, so this is a new phenomenon. Um, not all of it. There are different concerns with different types of crude, but but it's the Bakken from North Dakota that we've seen. You know, there was an explosion uh, last July in in a town in Quebec that killed 47 people uh, in this downtown. It was not people connected with the railroad, with oil refineries. It was people in a bar near where the train exploded. Um, There have been uh, derailments and explosions in Alabama, in Virginia, in North Dakota. So so we've just seen it's more volatile, and, and the train cars that are carrying it aren't safe enough. And what is the federal government doing about those train cars? The federal government has proposed new safety regulations. The, um, the recommendations, the public comment period actually just closed this week on, on those recommendations. Um, and the next step is that they will look at all the thousands of comments they got, and it's going to take a while. Um, the, these regulations, there are a bunch of different proposals, but, you know, slower speed limits, improved safety on the rail cars, um, uh, higher tech braking systems. One of the concerns, and Jess may bring this up, is how long is it going to take for these recommendations to actually come into place? Meanwhile, the trains are still coming. John Avalos, you obviously represent San Francisco, but you're on a regional board that's more concerned with air than, than with sort of rail safety. But how do you view this sort of the regional response to these uh, oil trains coming in that are sometimes from out of state? Who regulates them? They cross county, state lines. Uh, your view on this? Well, we've actually just started to weigh in on this issue. Um, we've had, heard a lot from the public. We have a lot of concerns about oil by rail coming into the Bay Area, and they've seen that there's been a huge increase in recent uh, recent years. Uh, it's been about 4,000% increase over the years. My perspective is that uh, accidents happen. Accidents will happen. Uh, one of my earliest memories, I grew up in a town called Wilmington, California, which is actually in Los Angeles. And Wilmington's surrounded by uh, refineries. Uh, it's a big one, Texaco, um, 
Union 76 is close by. All around us are refineries. And one of my earliest memories uh, is an explosion that had happened at the Texaco refinery. And uh, I saw a big ball of fire go up into the air. And uh, we were told that that would never happen. That would be the only one. Uh, but we've seen other things that have happened since then. And uh, we've seen, because we're at a, a time where we've reached peak oil, uh, we're now doing extreme ways to get oil that is very harmful for the environment. So at the Air District, we take this very seriously. Uh, we just recently had the explosion at the Richmond Chevron refinery, uh, and that put uh, thousands of people to go to the emergency room. And we need to make sure that uh, what we're doing as we're seeing the oil industry uh, change and a dramatic increase in oil coming by rail, that uh, we have to make sure that there are safety standards in place. We don't necessarily uh, have standards over the rail lines. That's going to be uh, other agencies, uh, state and federal, but uh, we want to look at do our part, especially when we're seeing that the change in, in uh, oil coming in is uh, uh, the Bakken and potentially tar sands is uh, you know, more toxic. That's going to be a concern for us. If there's more toxicity to uh, the oil, then that's going to actually increase uh, the volatile chemicals that are put in the air, uh, sulfur dioxide's put in the air. These are all the things that we're monitoring at the air district, and uh, those are, have harmful impacts, especially on the neighbor, on the communities uh, close to the refineries. But it actually affects uh, the whole Bay Area. And then we want to, we're concerned about uh, climate change as well. Uh, and we know that uh, this fuel also is uh, much more carbon intensive. Uh, and we have huge goals about that we want to meet uh, to meet our, our climate goals. And if we're seeing this change in uh, carbon-intense fuel coming in, we're going to see it much more difficult to achieve these goals. We'll talk about more uh, climate later in the broadcast. Uh, Tupper Hall, I spoke with a, a spokesperson from a rail line who said, look, you know, kind of pushed it back on the oil industry saying, well, our clients own the tankers and we don't really know what's in it or where it goes. Uh, so you know, where's the responsibility here between sort of the, the shippers, the, the oil companies and the railways who are um, just I guess what they do is they own the right of way and they they operate the engine. Well, I understand the railroads recommended that you contact me, um, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate their uh, their recognition of our role. It's a shared responsibility. In fact, it depends on the nature of the cargo. There are unit trains in which the cars are owned by the oil company that owns the product, and then there are manifest trains where a company will put in an order, and that product is delivered in a car that's owned by, by the railroad. But you know, the fact of the matter is the railroads are taking tremendous steps to change the way they operate, to work with the U.S. government in, in, in the types of um, equipment that are being integrated into the system. The oil industry has recommended since 2011 the upgrade of uh, construction standards for rail cars and is, was disappointed that those standards never got adopted. They've been integrating those cars into the fleet ever since. And so we're well on, uh, underway to bringing the, the, the fleet of rail cars up to standards. It's a large fleet. It's a very expensive process. But, you know, we're certainly, our members are making the investment to, to put the, the stronger, better constructed rail cars into service as quickly as possible. Is there a target date for when they'll all be converted to the sort of newer? There are dates within the federal rulemaking that's underway right now, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know what they are. 2018. 2018. Just there, that is the end date, but there are interim dates in which large portions of that fleet are being integrated. Just, Irvin Ackerman, I want to ask you, uh, there's a couple ways for the Bay Area to get oil. One is to drill for it in California. It can come in by rail. It can come in by ship, which a lot of it has in the past. Or, uh, you know, those are really the way, pipeline, right? So I think the Sierra Club doesn't support any of those. So do you have a, if we're going to get oil into the state or extract it in state, what's the best way to do it in the short term? Well, the truth of it is that we actually don't have any pipelines coming into California right now. So that's not even an option. But between... Would you like to build some? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> um, I definitely think, I, as we said before, you know, I feel like that is a totally false choice. You know, it's not about we have to do this and what's the safest way to do it. It's about the fact that we actually shouldn't be investing billions of dollars in new infrastructure that's not safe or that will cause harm and that will also contribute to climate change. And, you know, 
what Molly and John brought up is that actually, you know, we're running out of conventional oil in the United States and in the world right now. And what we're moving towards are these more extreme fuels, the term I used earlier to describe tar sands, which to get one barrel of oil digs up four tons of concrete and dirt and also clear cuts boreal pristine boreal forests in Canada and Alberta. And then, you know, the Bakken shale, which uses very dangerous and flammable and cancer-causing fracking fluid, which is then included in in the train cars that bring that oil to any refineries where it's refined. So neither of these sources, tar sands or Bakken, which is actually what all of the refine or most of the refineries are looking at switching over their crude stock to, are safe. So we should shouldn't be discussing what's the best way to bring these unsafe fuels to the Bay Area and through thousands of residents' communities from North Dakota or Canada to the Bay Area. That's just a completely false choice, and I think we should actually be investing these billions of dollars in local renewable energy, energy efficiency, you know, lower carbon fuels to, you know, run public transit or cars. Um, but, you know, I just, I, I think that's a false choice, and we shouldn't even be discussing that. Tucker Hell, your response? Look, we, we have a reality within the world that we live in, a very industrialized, mobile environment. We need 44 million gallons of gasoline every day in California. It's going to come from petroleum. Now, we can, we can talk about what the future holds, but our members – have an obligation to supply that market day in and day out. And as I said, they're going to do it as safely as they can, and they're going to do it at the lowest possible cost they can. And so this terminology that's being used, I understand its, its, its appeal. It is not based in a recognition of the realities we face. We're talking about a transition to a lower-carbon future that's generational. That's the reality. We're going to need fossil fuels for a very long time. U.S. Information Administration forecast, which is the best forecasting agency we have, looks at all of the technology and all of the regulations that are encouraging and, and, and incentivizing the development of alternatives. By 2040, 80 percent in their estimation of our energy supply will continue to be supplied by fossil fuels. So, again, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to – to advocate when you have no obligation to anybody to produce the product that they expect to be there when they show up at a service station tomorrow. That's the obligation that our members have, and they're committed to doing that as safely and efficiently and at the lowest possible cost they can. John Avalos, you put forward a plan for the Bay Area to, to move faster toward a, a clean energy future. Uh, I'd like to have you weigh in here. The reality is petroleum's going to be with us for a long time, but what's your plan say? Well, our, our plan is uh, moving towards uh, hitting our goals and our targets that were set in AB 32 around climate change, uh, that we want to be at 80 percent below 1990 levels by 2050, uh, and we have to take steps to do that. So, so market conditions uh, for the oil companies and transnational oil companies are very uh, different from the market conditions that we work under. Uh, market conditions for us are about, our, is our environment safe? Uh, do we have regulations in place? Are people protected? Do we have jobs for people? Uh, and I think the market conditions are, uh, from the oil company point of view, is lack of regulation. There hasn't been a single regulation that we put forward from the Air District that hasn't been opposed or, or competed with uh, from the oil industry. And what we're just trying to do is make sure that people in the Bay Area are protected. Uh, so our 10-point climate action plan is really aggressive. Uh, it's actually uh, years uh, late than, it, than what, it, what it should have been done earlier. Uh, it actually makes sure that we're hitting our targets, we're taking inventory, we're hiring new engineers to measure what's coming in, we're helping municipalities create their own plans to meet uh, their climate own, own climate action plans and uh, providing that level of expertise. Uh, but we're way behind the ball here. We are way behind the ball. Tupper Hall, let's get you a response that, that the industry is sort of slowing down this transition, playing, you know, blocking, the, blocking this transition. I, I'd like to note that Mr. Avalos references the uh, 2050 goal that was part of AB 32. The, the, the far more immediate and, and more developed goal was a, a 2020 goal of reductions to 1990 levels. We're going to hit that goal in California around 2017 or 2018. So we are making tremendous progress 
culturally and as a society. Our industry is changing. The transportation fleet is changing. We are making huge progress towards a lower carbon future. Part of that is uh, reduced the demand for gasoline. We have more efficient automobiles. There's some cultural changes. Younger people not owning cars and driving as much. Uh, is that a challenge for the oil industry? And can you envision maybe a contracting industry in state because demand is, is diminishing? It's a reality that our members accept. Remember, we're talking about companies, our members are companies that operate in a global theater. So they are looking at investments around the world and are adapting to changes in jurisdictions all over the world. They're also making investments into, this, into the alternative and, and renewable technology field. Why? They understand that's where we're going. They intend to be commercial participants in the market and that in the future. So they're very smart people. They've been very successful in operating their enterprises, and they're going to continue to to provide the the fuel that's required and needed. And that is, a, a, as I mentioned earlier, going to be a future that has probably lower demand for fossil fuels, but they'll be there and participating in the demand for the alternatives. Can I? Can uh, I Jester Van Ackerman. Sorry, can I just jump mm-hmm. in here for a second? I'm hearing a lot about talking about how we're actually, you know, we're still going to be dependent on fossil fuels and by 2050 or 80%, you know, we're going to still use fossil fuels by 2050. And that's actually, in California, not true. The California Energy Commission numbers show that in California, we're decreasing our use of fossil fuels. But I think what Tupper is getting at is the fact that our refineries in the Bay Area are global players. And actually, everything that we refine in the Bay Area and all the oil products we create are actually a lot, some of them are being exported, so they're not to be used here. And the point I want to make on that is that all of these decisions for new for new projects, every Bay Area refinery right now is trying to expand, and there are additional oil infrastructure projects that are trying to be added in the Bay Area. And these are not to serve the Bay Area necessarily, but they're actually to serve the companies and their global markets of oil products. And this these decisions are actually, should be made in the best you know, for to benefit the local communities. They should be in the best interest of the local communities, and what we're seeing, actually, is that they're not. And, you know, recently I heard a state lawmaker say, oh, on recruit by rail, our hands are tied. We can't do anything. And John actually said also, you know, the Air District has no jurisdiction over these, the crude by rail, you know, crude by rail coming into California. They actually do. The Air District has authority over an air permit for any new rail terminals that are built within the nine-county Bay Area, and we have tremendous opportunities for local communities to actually weigh in about whether these projects are the right fit for them. And that's what these decisions should be made being made on, not whether, you know, Chevron needs to expand so that it can make more money exporting oil out of the community. You know, this is... For a long time, the oil companies have been able to make these decisions and shove the community aside, and that is not the case anymore. And the community is rising up and actually making their voices heard. As John also said, you know, they're they're really getting at the Air District because they do have some authority here. And the other decision-making bodies are often local um, city councils or board of supervisors, but um, those are on the refinery projects when the refinery sits on city or county-owned land. Um, in the case of the Kinder Morgan Rail Terminal in Richmond, it's actually on BNSF land, which is federally regulated. So literally, this terminal was switched over from ethanol to Bakken shale oil, the ex- very explosive and terrifying kind of oil that we're transporting by rail now, um, without any public process at all and without even local decision makers on the Richmond City Council knowing. You know, we know... Um, there's an example of a woman who lives literally across the street from this rail terminal, and she did not know until KPIX, the local CBS here, did an investigative journalism piece. So the Sierra Club, along with other groups, has actually sued the Air District over that permit um, and issuing that permit without any kind of public process. And what we need to see is the local communities being part of this decision-making process, because if we are going to transition our energy economy, no matter what, it's not a choice now. We're running out of conventional oil. We either go, you know, towards the extreme energy era and we're totally screwed on climate or we move to a clean energy economy, the people in the Bay Area need to be part of those decisions. If you're just joining us, Jester Van Ackerman.
with the Sierra Club San Francisco Bay Area chapter. Our other guest today at Climate One are John Avalos from the Bay Area Air Board and the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, Molly Samuel from KQED, and Tupper Hell from the oil industry. I actually, uh, John Avalos. Um, I actually visited uh, Richmond a couple weeks ago uh, just to check out the Kinder Morgan site, uh, and it was really incredible to see how close that site was to Point Richmond, which is actually a fairly populated part. It's all populated, but this is a really close populatedly populated part of Richmond. Uh, and there was also a school that was right there as well. And when the Kinder Morgan facility and the trains are maneuvering, they're actually coming into Point Richmond, and the tracks are about 50 yards tops from the school. And so there's a lot of concern that residents have about the safety, especially when we've seen uh, the derailments and the explosions that have happened, uh, Lac Megantique, Quebec being the biggest one. That was July of 2013, where 47 uh, people died. Um, so people have a, a lot, great concern about derailments that happen as these trains are going through urban areas uh, and areas that are populated. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, uh, Forest Ethics uh, has on their website um, – this uh, image of you know what the blast zone is around these areas. It's about a mile uh, distant from the actual train tracks, and so we know if you look in the Bay Area, what the blast zone looks like. It's in the most you know populated parts of the East Bay, uh, along the along the Bayfront, uh, and that's a pretty frightening you know thing to, to consider. How likely is that to happen? It's it can happen. Uh, accidents will happen, uh, but there's other places around the country. 25 million people around the country are actually along the rail lines that will be used to transport uh, oil from uh, North Dakota and other places. And Molly, Sam, you've sure. done some reporting on preparedness. Uh, are first responders ready for this? And, and where can people go to find out if this is near them? Yeah, well, I was actually going to take a step back before okay. getting there and explain, you know. Who, who can regulate this, actually? Because in a, a lot of times, and I assume, you know, often on Climate One, we're discussing why, why California is leading in things, for instance, air regulations. California can't lead here because the railroads are regulated by the federal government. Um, and and got to wait. And, and California has tried in the past. There was a terrible spill in 1991 that spilled pesticide uh, down the, the, I think it was the Sacramento River for 40 miles. It killed every fish, every insect. It killed everything. Uh, the California Public Utilities Commission, which regulates rail in theory in California, tried to just make that track stronger at that bend in the track and lost in court. Um, can't do it. Can't, it's only, only the feds can, can regulate rail in that way. And so that's why even if you're hearing cities, you know, Berkeley, Davis, Richmond, the city councils have all passed resolution, resolutions saying we, we oppose crew by rail. It doesn't matter. Not even the state can do anything um, to make it, you know, if they're concerned about safety. Um, in terms of, of preparedness, you know, here in the Bay Area, if something terrible happened, there are, there are first responders. There are, there are fire departments that are prepared. If a spill happened, say, you know, up in Dunsmuir again, if there was an accident there where where that spill was in 91, you're talking volunteer fire departments. Do they have the foam trucks prepared? It's it's not not everywhere up and down the lines are are first responders prepared, and they don't know when the trains are coming. So... Their hands are a little tied. Is, is someone trying to get the get that information in terms of what particular trains has the industry been providing that information about, uh, rather than just sort of six months after the fact in a timely and, and detailed fashion? So, so the um, the executive order, the the emergency order that said railroads, you've got to tell states what's going on. That did it a little bit. What what the state of California through the California Office of Emergency Services is getting now is uh, retroactive information. So it's saying, so what they're able to work with is essentially. Yeah, on a, about a, once a week, a train comes through. Um, they don't know when the train is going to come. I, now, I understand that the state is working with the railroads to get better information, um, but right now, that's what first responders have to work with. Molly Samuels, a reporter with KQED. Uh, Tupper Hall, you want to get in there? Um, so, so let me talk about the role that the state does have, because the state does have a role, and it is acting on that role. The state of California, in the new budget, is going to expand the Marine Spill and Prevention Program that I think is recognized as one of the best in the world to all inland areas to, to cover crude by rail. Our members and ultimately our, the consumers of our products are going to pay a little more to finance that program. We, it, there's still a great deal of debate that's going to occur about how those funds actually get deployed. Our position is the first people who should be in line of that are the first responders located along the rail lines. Secondly, 
We supported a bill by uh, Assemblyman Dickinson that is going to uh, that will require the, the the railroads to provide to the uh, Office of Emergency Service and therefore the first responders the very information that Molly's been talking about. So there is a lot of work being done. There's a lot more than that being done. But those are two examples of the steps the state and the oil industry has taken to address this issue from a safety. What, what, I'm, what, I'm, what, what I'm concerned about is that safety comes comes last. It's always the, the changes that are happening, and then the safety measures will follow suit. Uh, what we had what in uh, Richmond, there was a change from uh, ethanol to, uh, I believe it was Bakken crude, and it actually no one knew from the public knew about it until after the fact. There was an NBC or ABC story about it. So now we're talking about what we're going to do to prevent that from happening again or to make sure there are safety measures in place. Uh, why aren't we thinking about that beforehand? This is all the, the changes in the oil industry are being driven uh, by the oil industry, and we're playing catch-up to figure out how we can protect uh, the public and protect the environment. It should be the other way around. We should be putting those measures in place. We should be driving uh, what the market is by reducing our dependency on on oil, going more to renewables, and uh, we're challenged at that in so many ways. And the biggest challenge we have is pay-to-play politics, is that how much of uh, the money that comes into elected officials and people who are decision-makers influence what they do. Uh, Just last this past year, we had huge plans in San Francisco uh, to create our clean power uh, program, to have a whole renewable renewable program here in San Francisco for local residents to tap into, uh, and it was defeated by PG&E and uh, the mayor's administration uh, that is actually in the pocket of PG&E. When we actually are able to change our politics, we could actually promote uh, environmental measures that are going to put the public and the environment first. Tupper Hall, do you think that self-industry, in, uh, self-regulation and self-action is enough, or should there be more, does there need to be more oversight in some places on rail or refining, et cetera. I have to tell you, from the perspective of the oil industry, the idea of self-regulation or a lack of regulation and oversight in California is not an accurate picture. We operate in the most heavily regulated environment in in the world in California. Consequently, refineries in, in California are the lowest emitting refineries in the world and produce the cleanest burning fuel. So we, we are heavily regulated, probably more tightly regulated than anywhere else. Um, we, we continue to work within that environment. We have a point of view. We're going to express that point of view as effectively as we can. Uh, and to suggest that we're operating in an unregulated market is, is not an accurate portrayal. Let's get a baseline in terms of, of climate. Is climate disruption happening? Is it caused by humans burning fossil fuels? Yes. Let's talk about the solutions then uh, from that in terms of how, what is the path forward? Is it ethanol? Is it biofuels? Uh, what's the path forward and innovation for getting cl- a cleaner, cleaner economy? Our view is the path forward is technology. The technology that will continue to give people the sorts of mobility, the convenience, the comforts that they've come to expect – is the only way you're going to bring this lower carbon future out without having an enormous backlash on the part of people who are not, don't live in the Bay Area, are not in this debate here today. They're getting up, they're going to work, they're trying to, to, to provide for their families, and they have an expectation that they're going to be able to do that. And so providing them an, a, an alternative to do that in a way that they can afford and integrate into their lives is absolutely essential to talk about these things as if we're going to impose higher costs, fewer options, less mobility to people, in our view, is a loser, absolutely a loser. Higher costs, but any economist would say, in fact, I've talked here with George Schultz and many economists who say that there are costs of burning fossil fuels that are put on society, that are, they call them externalized, and that in a, a real true accounting world, the cost of burning fossil fuels ought to be borne by the people who burn them. They are paid by society at the hospital and other places with asthma and other social, you know, the drought and, and extreme weather. So shouldn't people who burn fossil fuels like me and everyone listening to this in their car uh, pay for those true costs of burning fossil fuels, a carbon price? Well, I mean, they are. They are in California now. We have a cap-and-trade program where the costs from the stationary source side are beginning to be built into the product that are sold. In January of this year, we're going to bring 
gasoline and diesel. For the very first time anywhere in the world, California will regulate gasoline and diesel uh, sales under a cap-and-trade program. We have a position about that. We don't think the public is prepared for it. We are advocating it be delayed. I don't think we're going to be successful with that advocacy. The governor said in, in his speech to the U.N. Climate Summit that he was determined to go forward, but we're going to see that the, the delivery of those costs in a very stark way beginning January 1 in the prices we pay for fuel. Now, whether or not people find that acceptable, who are the ultimate arbiters of this, remains to be seen. But we are on that path. Nobody is in our industry is questioning that that's the path we're on. There's a lot of discussion about, um, uh, you know, a carbon tax. It's interesting that the policies we're pursuing in California, in our view, are largely designed to try to mask that uh, monetizing of carbon from the ultimate consumers. And we think it needs to be transparent, upfront, and let the consumers make that ultimate and the electorate make that ultimate decision. I'm Greg Dalton at Climate One. We're talking about uh, oil and fuels in the Bay Area today. Uh, Jess Durbin Ackerman, your response to that in terms of the path forward uh, and, and the impact on California drivers in January when transportation fuels come into the cap-and-trade system. Sure, and we actually just saw a poll from Californians which said they were actually willing to pay more for transportation fuels if it caused or if it helped us with climate protection. So I think Californians are speaking for themselves here in this situation. And, you know, there definitely has to be an equity piece to this. We know that some folks can afford to pay for those things, and those are the, usually the folks that are buying the, you know, electric cars right now. We definitely need to build that into the way that we're creating this clean energy future. We need to be able to make these solutions equitable and available to everyone in California. Um, but, you know, we're seeing that Californians are ready for this. They know what it's going to take and they're ready to do it. John Avalos, you're elected here. Are, are your constituents uh, on board with higher gas prices next year to fight climate? I think there'll be a lot of concern about the price going up. I, I, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of explaining what the costs are going to be external to the price of gas. And uh, that's something I talk about all the time. Uh, I've actually been working really hard to promote uh, transit in my in my district, and it's a very hard thing to do because our transit facilities aren't quite as strong as they – infrastructure is not as, as strong and built out as it needs to be. So people have the best option for them, they believe, is in their car. Uh, and so I'm working against the tide, but that's I think that's what has to be done. We have to talk about things that are actually difficult to talk about in terms of the costs going up, in the immediate costs going up, but the cost down the road or even uh, the cost of uh, asthma and the conditions that we face on a daily basis are, are great, and they're related to – to what is happening with people using their cars uh, at, a, at a greater amount than they should. And what's your view on California's overall climate plan? Is it going fast enough, the state level, Governor Brown, everything else? Is it going as fast as it needs to go? Well, uh, I think it's going in the right direction. California is actually way ahead of a lot of other states in the, in the country, so I actually think it's important that there's a way to share what's happening in California and the Bay Area uh, with other places that we have examples uh, that it is possible uh, to have regulations and targets that uh, can be met. And so that's, I think, the work that needs to get done. But, yeah, there's always needs to be – we have need, we need enforcement to make sure uh, that it happens. We need public education that needs to happen. We also need to build out our public infrastructure as well that can give people options uh, from using uh, fossil fuels. Tupper Hall, one thing that people do to get away from fossil fuels, they drive an electric car. Is that a threat to the oil industry? No, I drive an electric car, as a matter of fact. I have a Chevy Volt. I also drive a race car, and, a, and I have a truck that hauls it. So, you know, this is a good example not to toot my own horn. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. Using the technology <laughs> that's the most effective. I have, I have needs, and, 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 I, and I have recreation, and I have adapted the available technology but, to, to, to fit that. But that's an, that was an expensive car to buy. I'm fortunate enough to be able to afford it. A lot of people can't. And so bringing that technology into a, a fleet of 38 million vehicles is going to be a challenge, and it's going to take a lot of time. And it's going to require a lot of um, patience and assistance on the part of, of the, the public agencies to bring the people who are not enjoying the economic recovery and, and that's occurring on the coastal portions of California. You know, there are two states in California right now, and one of them is thriving and one of them is not. The Central Valley and the, and the, and the counties that are in the Central Valley are not in a recovery. They're in a depression. 
unemployment is extraordinarily high. And those folks need to be taken into account, as you all in the Bay Area and on the coast, you know, debate where you think public policy needs to go. A few years ago, cellulosic biofuels, drop-in fuels that could be put into existing gasoline tanks, into existing uh, fuel pumps, ex- existing infrastructure, were all the rage. They were going to save us and didn't really pan out that way. What happened? Well, this is a good example in our view of government's um, poor track record in picking winners and losers. So we have a regulation in California called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, and this was a a regulation that said you need to reduce the carbon intensity of fuels by X amount over a period of about 10 years. Um, That regulation has been frozen for the very reasons that that you mentioned. It was developed at a time when there was tremendous expectation that the cellulosic ethanol, and this is an alcohol-based fuel that can be made in the lab from landfill waste, from waste agricultural products. So it has a very low carbon intensity. You're not converting food production into some some fuel production uses. Um, You do take a lot of energy to do it. But The reality is that technology did not evolve in the way that it was anticipated. And so today we still do not have commercial cellulosic ethanol production at any scale that would be necessary to to provide that kind of um, uh, blend stock to create the, the carbon intensity targets in that regulation. It will be developed. We're confident of that. There will somebody will figure out how to how to take what works very well in the lab and produce it at the enormous volumes we need. But it's not there, and we're stuck with a regulation that, without it, we're looking at some very serious problems on the supply side. To meet the regulation with a, with a compliant fuel is going to be tough, in our view, infeasible. Tupper Hull is a spokesman for the oil industry. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about oil in the Bay Area. Jester Van Ackerman, cellulosic biofuels have been disappointing. One of the early promising companies, Solazyme, uh, sold a lot of fuel to the Navy, and they started making things for makeup and other things, which are higher margin, lower volume things. Uh, there's been some disappointment. So the transition may not be as easy as you'd like it to be. I think I want to take a step back and actually get us out of transportation fuels because I have to admit I'm not a scientist that works specifically on transportation fuels. Usually these guys who say I'm I'm not a a scientist. I'm a community organizer. I am not a scientist either. And part of it is actually that our, you know, out of our entire greenhouse gas inventory, transportation is a big portion of it, but another portion of it right now is our electricity generation. And that's something that John um, brought up earlier, talking about how San Francisco and actually the Bay Area is leading in a transformation to a clean energy economy in the electricity sector using um, a program called Community Choice Energy, which is actually using our munis- municipalizing our energy source uh, our electricity generation and letting local jurisdictions make their decisions about where their electricity generation comes from for all of the residents within their community. So we've seen Marin Clean Energy, which offers 50% and 100% renewable electricity to their customers. Sonoma Clean Power and Sonoma just launched this year. They also offer 33 and 100%. Um, San Francisco actually started uh, to work on their program called Clean Power SF about 10 years ago in 2000. Um, and they, the plan is to offer only a 100% clean energy option, and this would automatically switch over all residents within the city. And actually, in um, the summer, in June of this year, Alameda County, which has 1.5 million residents, actually also put down $1.3 million to move forward with their own community choice energy program. So we're seeing a transformation, also, not just in you know transport, but or the trans- transportation sector, but also in the the electricity sector. And I think we need to talk about this in a much larger picture um, because there are lots of different moving pieces here. But we, what I'm trying to say is that we actually have the solutions we need to create a clean energy economy. And we are doing it in the Bay Area and we are leading it. And all over the state, actually, you know, um, Monterey, San Benito and Santa Cruz counties are also trying to create one of these programs. San Diego County is looking into it. And speaking of the Central Valley, Lancaster, California is also going to create theirs. And they have this, um, they have been moving mountains in terms of 
uh, solar energy for um, electricity generation for their members. Every new home that's built in Lancaster has to have solar on its roof, and they are going to be the next Community Choice Energy Program that's launched, I bet you. Jester Van Ackerman is with the Sierra Club, San Francisco Bay. Before we go to John Avalos, uh, Tupper Hall, uh, one of the uh, delicious ironies of this is in, in Marin, it's Shell Oil that's involved in delivering clean energy, or it would, maybe that was the case in San Francisco. They're actually oil companies getting involved in this uh, consumer choice uh, democratization of the power industry. It's a business opportunity for them. Well, that's what I said. I mean, these are companies that are very smart, and they're, they're committed to the economies in which they operate, and they're going to operate successfully uh, based on what the regulatory environment is and the social and cultural environment. They're going to make that change, and they're part of it. And by the way, Lancaster isn't in the San Joaquin Valley. John Avalos, what's, what's the future of these community choice where people get to pick their power, and can the monopoly utilities stop this? Well, we've seen that uh, PG&E and the monopoly utilities have tried to stop them. They had, uh, what was it, Prop 26 that was? or They tried to amend the state 16. constitution. Prop yeah, 16, 16 that was on the ballot in 2010, uh, and they put, I think it was like $25 million statewide to try and uh, have their measure pass, but uh, people all over the state rejected that, and that was really exciting. We were, we were able to see uh, Marin Clean Energy go forward, and then Sonoma since then. Lancaster is being talked about. What's really exciting about Marin Clean Energy is that they've actually expanded to uh, places beyond Marin. Now they're going to be in Richmond. Uh, there's a facility in Point Richmond that will be providing uh, solar power. There'll be jobs that are going to be created from that. So they've actually gone across into, I think that's uh, Contra Costa County, uh, which is uh, something that we're seeing is very, very exciting. We can't seem to get our program off the ground uh, in San Francisco. And, well, it, for me, it's related to PG&E being based in San Francisco, and they have a lot of influence over elected officials and commissioners who play a role in uh, blocking the ability to move forward on our clean energy plans. Uh, and so I know it's a matter of time that we'll be able to do that if we can change some of the politics around that. We have one of our PUC commissioners who's here, Francesca Viator, who was actually a supporter of the program, but the majority of people in the Public Utility Commission who were going to be supporting greenlining our Clean uh, Power SF program uh, voted against it. It was very unfortunate. There were unions that were lined up against it. Uh, there were other elected officials that were lined up against it. PG&E came out hard uh, against it, and the politics went, 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 went away. So seeing the, that there were other counties uh, that were actually implementing their clean um, pr- energy programs like Community Choice Segregation programs is really exciting, uh, and we know we know more are going to be in, jumping in line as well. John Avalos is a member of the uh, Bay Area Air Board and the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. We're talking about energy and oil in the uh, in the Bay Area. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Deb Self. I'm Executive Director of San Francisco Baykeeper, keeping the Bay safe from pollution, including oil spills. I'm also the Vice Chair of the state's Oil Spill Technical Advisory Committee. And uh, I actually have just a couple of comments. In the first year that we started importing oil into the state by rail, we exported $7.8 billion worth of oil overseas. Uh, I also just wanted to comment on what the state can do. It's true we just got the, – the, the governor got behind uh, a trailer bill that expanded the state's oil spill agency to cover all inland areas, which is essential if we can go back to oil by rail for a second. However, Union Pacific and BNSF have uh, asked their lawyers to tell the state to stand down that they are under no obligation under federal law to coordinate with the state on spill response, spill planning, or notification. Thank you. Um, any response to that, Deborah? Okay. Let's have our next question. Yes, I'm Charlie Peters, Clean Air Performance Professionals. We're a coalition of motorists, and we're very interested in the in the other part of the rail transport, which is the ethanol, which is a very comparable amount of cars coming in with very comparable uh, kinds of hazards. We are under the impression that no one ever checks our water supply for ethanol. No one ever. It is a carcinogen that causes cancer. When are we going to have somebody take a look and find out what kind of impact ethanol and a new butanol that's coming is having on our water supply that may be affecting us all, causing cancer that nobody is giving any attention to whatsoever? Thanks for that question. Uh, Jester Van Ackerman, Sierra Club, looking at that? I would say talk to Deb Self, who's the executive director of SF Baykeeper. She would probably know more than I do. She's here in the audience today. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. It used to be that uh, the poor communities were li- lived on the wrong side of the tracks. Well, nowadays, 
either side of the track, if you're close, is the wrong side. The most impacted communities the gentleman referred to, the two Californians, well, one of the Californians are the people who are in poor communities, people of color, who live near the tracks. Uh, what possible guarantees can you give them that an accident is going to happen in their, in their neighborhood? The Westpac project in Pittsburgh threatens to bring in 10 million gallons of crude per day. What could go wrong? Tupper Hall? Well, I think the question was, what guarantee can somebody provide a community that an accident isn't going to happen? And, of course, it's a rhetorical question. What we can guarantee, and it's happening today, is people who are a lot smarter than I am and committed to, to looking at what the available existing regulations are and the existing practices are, are investing a huge amount of effort to make sure that the risks to those communities are reduced to the lowest possible point. And I just want to jump in on that. Um, you know, we normally when we uh, kind of evaluate new projects, we do risk assessments. And often, you know, at the Air District, we use health risk assessments. And we say, okay, if we have a new oil terminal going in, you know, an acceptable death rate from this uh, pollutant is 25 in a million or 50 in a million. From the oil industry's own numbers and the rail industry's own numbers, you know, their crude oil shipments um, are delivered safe 99.9% of the time. We have 7 million people that live in the nine-county Bay Area. That means we're willing to sacrifice 7,000 people or 1,000 per million. I don't think that that's an acceptable level of risk. And, and also talking about rail, I mean, when you do these environmental impact reports deciding on projects like this, for instance, the Valero project in Benicia, you're usually, you know, you're kind of defining where you're looking, who's at risk. Um, and what happens with rail, there were people coming in and commenting on this project from Davis, from, from cities that are way outside of what you would usually look at for health impact saying, well, what if there's a train accident? We're on these tracks. And so part of the concern with safety with, with projects that are on rail is it goes all the way back to North Dakota. And how do you assess that risk? An environmental impact report conducted by a small city, how does it grasp that? It's, 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 it's a challenge. So this is challenging, lots of things. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Colin Murphy, Next Gen Climate America. Mr. Hull, earlier you said that technology is the way to achieve uh, long-term climate solutions. I know that WISPA has often found itself opposing several technology-promoting policies. Uh, last year in the legislature, uh, WISPA opposed AB 1992 and AB 2390, both of which would have had technology-promoting uh, effects. Can you please tell me what sort of technology-promoting policies would be available and would be acceptable to WISPA? WISPA being the Western States Petroleum Association that you're part of. Tupper uh, Hall. I'm not familiar with the legislation. I mean, every year in increasing numbers – there are a great many legislative proposals made that are aspirational, that are based, again, on this point of view that we do not support and agree on, that transferring money from the existing energy um, um, infrastructure or, or energy companies to uh, underwrite or subsidize alternatives is not a pro is not a, are not policies that we're going to support. We think the development of technologies that are competitive in the marketplace provide the consumers the, the, the convenience and the affordability they need. We are all about those types of technology development proposals. But compelling companies that deliver energy today to transfer or to take, to, you know, to confiscate dollars, to transfer to alternatives is not a... You, it's not realistic to think companies are going to support that type of public policy. What if we just transferred the subsidies that the oil industry gets from the federal and state governments to clean energy? Would you not oppose that? That's not taking any money from the energy companies. Let's it's talk taking about the subsidies. public funding. Let's talk about – well, let's not get into it. So there, there, are, there are zero subsidies provided to the, ener to the oil industry. That's a fact. There are tax breaks and investment credits available to all manufacturers in the United States, and the oil industry takes advantages of those. If you want to talk about subsidies, talk about the dollars that are going in to subsidize the alternative energy industry in California. I got $1,500 from the state of California back because I bought a Chevy Volt. I was happy to spend it. Did I need it? No. Was that an inducement to my utilizing that technology? It was not. But that is, in many ways, 
a cornerstone of what we believe is a misguided attempt to compel the development of technologies in directions that may or may not ultimately prove to be effective. There is uh, accelerated depreciation that happens. If if someone puts up a solar facility or a a wind facility, uh, they don't get the same kind of accelerated depreciation that oil and gas gets. So there are some favors, some special treatments for oil and gas. Are you talking about specific to oil and gas or available to the manufacturing sector? Accelerated depreciation for, for extraction from... Uh, from Wells, we had the former chief economist of the World Bank here who estimated it. It was worldwide, Nicholas Stern, $500 billion was his estimate of subsidies to the oil and gas industry and you know globally. How, a lot of, a lot of that's overseas. Was, and what was – you need to know, understand what that number is. Those are governments that are subsidizing Partly. the cost of fuel for their citizens. That is not – those are not subsidies and is not, in, uh, you know, reflective of – government policies in the United States to underwrite or subsidize some of petroleum energy Some of production. that's true overseas. Some of that's in the United States. John Avalos. So I, I wanted to kind of link into the subsidy question because there are subsidies and there are subsidies. There are subsidies that are actually cash incentives and there are tax breaks. Uh, there's also a subsidy that I believe is actually uh, resistance from elected officials and decision makers from really applying uh, stronger regulations. Uh, and that's a huge subsidy that uh, fossil fuel companies receive, utilities receive, Uh, that I think really uh, needs to be noted. Let's go to our next question. When I hear remarks about a potential blast radius of a a mile in diameter and and this this accident in Canada that uh, literally vaporized people, what I think about is every morning I walk my daughter to preschool. That preschool is in the East Bay. It's a few hundred yards from a rail line. And I guess I'm wondering, how can I determine whether there are explosive crude oil shipments going on that track. Molly Samuel, where can a person, concerned citizen, go? If you see the train go by and you see that little hazard placard, that'll tell you. Um, Aside from that, you know, the railroads don't want to make this that public, and they say it's a homeland security issue. Um, We've tried to get the information. Again, the states are trying to get the information. When the the state initially tried to to get it the first time, the, and, and this may have been what, what uh, Deb from Baykeeper was referring to, the railroads tried to get the states to sign non-disclosure agreements to say, all right, we're going to give you this information, but we're not going to make it public. California refused to do that um, and did make public what they were getting. It wasn't that specific. And, and what the documents that I've been able to see, and, and they're on our website, you know, I've posted them on KQED. Um, I think that if you were a seasoned engineer, you could probably figure out which track that meant it was on. For me, I was able to figure out what county the tracks were on. That's the information that was there. So if you see a crude oil train going by, you'll know because you can find out what that number says. Put a, put a drop cam on the, on the rail line. Do we know where this person lives or where the preschool is? Because we actually do know what projects are proposed, and we can have a good guess at what oil, what actual rail lines are going to be using. Right now, Bakken Shale oil, oil only goes along the um, northern side of Contra Costa County, right along the Carquina Strait to Richmond. But there is actually another proposal to bring crude by rail, five 100 or 120 car long trains per week, actually through the entire East Bay, right along the shoreline, which goes through El Cerrito, Berkeley. Um, Oakland, Emeryville, all the way along. And um, that actually, the um, environmental review for that project was so flawed that they're recirculating that, and it's about to be open any day now. So please see me after, and I will tell you how to comment on that project, because I do not want crude by rail going through Oakland near where my house is, and I'm sure that most folks who live in the East Bay also do not want it going through their communities. Last question. Uh, Hi, I'm Ross Hammond. I'm the U.S. Campaigns Director at Forest Ethics. So in terms of the oil cars, the cars that are on the rails now, so the federal government has been saying since 1991 that these are not uh, able to to safely carry flammable and explosive liquids, and yet they keep staying on the rails. When drug manufacturers, when Tylenol made one person sick, they immediately took it off the shelf. When the Ford Pinto started blowing up, Ford pulled them off. So in terms of the oil industry, I'm really curious what the talking points are. When one of these things eventually blows up, how will you explain to that community why you've been fighting tooth and nail, delay, 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 to, oh, it's going to cost us so much money, it's going to cause all these disruptions. So what are the talking points that you guys have 
in the eventuality that there is an explosion in a populated area. You may have missed the earlier portion of the program where I said that since 2011, the oil industry has been recommending that the Department of Transportation adopt stronger rail car construction standards. Those are only being adopted today into the new rulemaking that's underway. We're joined here today at Climate One by Jess Durbin Ackerman from the Sierra Club San Francisco Bay Chapter, Molly Samuel, reporter with KQED Science. John Avalos is a member of the Bay Area Air Board and also the Bay Area Board of Supervisors. And Tupper Hull, spokesman for the Western States Petroleum Association. I'm Greg Dalton. Podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are available for free in the iTunes store. I'd like to thank you here in the audience and on the radio for joining us at Climate One today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.